0: If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters, spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional
1: dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more.
2: It's okay to be open and just let people in um, and whoever's going to stay is going to stay and just like accepting that is, I mean it sucks because you're like you're giving somebody a piss of you in a way so you're like opening up, telling them who you are, what your experiences are and then they just walk out and that's it. So that is like the fear but just like open up and just, just see where it goes honestly, that is what I'm working on right now. Good morning
1: everybody, welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week we have an old friend of mine, Maleki Wamalume, who I went to high school with and then reconnected with in Philadelphia.
2: Maleki, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. My name is Maleki and I'm from Zambia and currently I'm a wellness coordinator at Drexel University. I work at a site. The site is 11th Street Family Health Services. What do you guys focus on at the family services? So as my position as a wellness coordinator, I am focused more on the trauma-informed care, and it's also very um, just taking people in as a whole and meeting them where they're at. And I know that you mentioned that you grew up in Zambia. How long did you live there, and what was that upbringing like? So I was born in Zambia, uh, born and raised, and lived there for 11 years. So my upbringing was, at the time, I would say, that's the only thing I knew so it was more natural for me it was tough I mean I saw a lot of things experienced a lot of things and some things that like you know made me grow up much faster than I would have preferred but um yeah is there anything that specifically comes to mind around there I would just say like just different struggles I would say especially now living in the United States is you know I look back and I'm like wow it's a different like life Different culture. Um, so, if we're getting specific, you know, by the time I was nine, I had to like wash my own clothes,
1: and this is by hand. I'm assuming. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. So,
2: like, literally, you have two buckets. One is the rinser, and one is the bucket with like detergent. So, you have to like wash in one, rinse in one, and hang it up. So, and you didn't really
1: think anything different of this
2: until you moved over into America. That's just life as it was there. Yeah. Right? At the time, I thought that was literally what is life like. That is what life is so i thought that was normal i mean it is normal honestly if you think about it but um i would just say it was a challenge at the time but yeah i had to learn how to do that learn how to cook different meals that i still know how to cook now and just it was it's a different culture i'd say yeah i think this is a
0: refreshing interview also for me personally and for both of us because I don't know anyone from Zambia, personally. I have a friend, Matthias Weist, a friend and the guest of the show. He uh, lives in Rwanda in South Africa, but of course Africa is an extremely large landscape and continent. With that being said, I'm asking the circumstances and the life you went through, that you had to hand wash your own clothes at, at the age of nine, which is a very young age. Is that more of a cultural representation or is it more of a personal, your family representation of what the life was like for you?
2: I think in Zambia, you just you have to learn how to do a lot of things because parents or guardians are always on the go. You just have to, I guess, just literally become a man for yourself. Uh, it's just the upbringing, I would say, because we don't have the uh, comfort of having like, people that are like taking care of us at that age. People don't have that luxury to do that, I would say. Yeah, so you can't be like, oh, I'm going hi- to hire like, a babysitter to like, watch you obviously funds are low certain things just don't you know come together when did the transition
1: idea what caused you to begin moving over to america or even when did the thought of making that move from africa to america come into being kind of could you walk us through that story journey a little bit
2: yeah so after being born like in zambia obviously i was young so i don't remember much of it parents divorced at a young age so uh, my dad went a separate way. My mom went a separate way. My mom did um, did as much as she could at the time. Obviously, she was just too, like trying to find herself, get herself grounded, supportive and all that. So she, me and my brother, after I was born, my parents were divorced. We moved to my grandma's house because I think my mom at the time just didn't have the means to support us. So it would be better for, like, young kids to have, like, somewhere to grow up, go to school, rather than, like, bouncing around. So she left me and my brother with my grandmom in Zambia. Uh, We lived in a town called Livingston, and that's where, like, the Victoria Falls is, if you guys are familiar with that. I think it's the second largest falls in Africa. Yeah, so we lived there, and that's where I spent most of my childhood, up to 11 years old. Um, Meanwhile, my mom was in the search of trying to find a stable life, so she... She worked in Zambia, but Zambia obviously wasn't doing what she wanted, or her goals were not met in Zambia. Mm-hmm. So she moved to Zimbabwe, and in Zimbabwe, she started working there, got herself situated, and then moved us from Zambia to Zimbabwe. After a while, my mom was like, this is not either," so like, she had to transition again. My mom's a nurse, by the way, so like, her nurse friends were like, we have to go somewhere and try it different uh, places so all her friends made the move to England and my mom wanted to be different from that and that's literally just the reason she's like I'm not gonna follow everybody so she's like I'm gonna try to crack the United States so obviously the United States it's a lot harder to get into so she couldn't bring us with her so we had to ship back from Zimbabwe to Zambia and in Zambia we stayed with my grandma for like seven years because my mom moved here in two thousand. Two thousand. That's when she moved into the United States. But then her um, transcripts did not like transfer over because it's different education systems. Mm-hmm. So she had to like start from the ground up again. So she had to do like a, she was a nanny for like a while, just trying to like get some money, get her like herself like situated at the time. So she lived in New York for a while, a nanny for like different families. Meanwhile, we're still living in Zambia with my grandma um she would call, and that's the only uh connection that I had with my mom. So if you can imagine that being five years old, only connection you have with your mom is through the phone. but yeah, so that's how like our connection like was from a young age and then she moved to California, worked there actually, met a few people that actually helped her apply for our visas and like get us here. She worked in California and then she shipped it back to like Pennsylvania, and that's where like she actually got like situated. She's a single mom too, so like she's doing all she could, and I always thank her for that. And then in two thousand seven, we finally made the move from Zambia to America.
1: When you say we, is that you and a sibling?
2: Yeah, so I have my my older brother Mushi, and he is his birthday is actually coming up on Monday. Yeah, there is so much for us to unpack
0: yeah and thanks for sharing a lot of that and as a fellow immigrant myself with an immigration background and that's the reason why i love having guests that also have the immigration stories and experiences because it is a unique experience right especially in this multi-cultural melting pot pot in the us so for you maliki sounds like you had to be mature Mm -hmm. since the early age the fact that you had to wash your own clothes when you're nine years old, or you had to hop on the flight. Mm-hmm. A strange, giant, metallic thing that happened to fly for the first <laughs> time with your brother yeah. at a young age of you know, 13 and 14. And I also had a similar upbringing growing up. My mom, she was very busy trying to establish her career as an entrepreneur, so she worked a lot. Uh, me and my sister were very fortunate enough to have a nanny, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't see my mom maybe like once every other week on a Sunday for like a brief couple hours and she'll go back to her grind trying to establish a mm-hmm. company. And I also were very self-aware since a very young age. And I, I many people consider me to be very mature for similar experience that you went through that mm-hmm. I had to be mature. And of course, there is a financial differences between our circumstances. But I think that has nothing to do with your emotional maturity or your maturity in life. Right, So I just want to reflect that for the people that a lot of people, including the inner city kids that I used to teach in Philadelphia or people like us or people like you, a lot of the maturities were forced upon us. That the maturity were necessitated by the conditions and that we had to be mature because we had no other options like you talked about. Mm -hmm. It's not that you didn't want to only eat bread and butter for breakfast, but that was the only viable option. So with that being said, when you reflect upon your vast... Immigration, moving around with your brother, being self reliant, growing up without a dad or a mom. Mm-hmm. What was the most difficult transition for you when you first came to the US? And like, I don't know how prevalent the American culture was mm-hmm. from Africa's point of view. I'm, I'm sure there's like the movies, the Hollywood, the perceptions of what the US would be like. But when you first actually came off to that mm-hmm. humidity in the United States, in New York City and onwards, what was the most difficult part? Was the racial aspect? Was it a cultural difference? Or was it the language barrier? But I think uh, unpacking to that will provide all the value for the listeners.
2: I think for me personally, like in Zambia, I, would, I spoke English. We learned English. So it just wasn't as fluent at the time. And I think when certain people meet me now, I mean, if, if you've known me for a while, you can pick up my accent. But if you meet me just from the go, it's harder for you to pick it up. You wouldn't know if I'm from Zambia. And I think that comes from just moving here from a young age. Whereas like my brother is, he was more like transitioning into like a teenager. So it's, you can spot it out faster than you could spot it out on me, if that makes sense. But uh, moving in here and into like the United States, I think the most challenging part for me was having to like build everything from from the go. If you can imagine a kid that is 11 years old having to start from zero, like build trust into friends and have a best friend, which at the time I didn't have from 11 to honestly like college. I think the challenging part for me was just getting into like transitioning into like talking to people and just like getting comfortable with people and then also them getting comfortable with me. And you also have to realize that at the time Being from Africa as a kid was kind of, like, standoffish. People would just, like, look down on you for being from Africa. So that was another challenge that I had to, like, jump over. Mind you, like, going home, it was just, like, me and my brother most of the time. Because my mom worked a lot. Um, She worked overnight. So reason being, she wanted to be home, make meals while we're at school. So we come back to, like, meals while she's working, you know. So it just balances out, which like worked perfectly cause then we would like be at soccer from like, I don't know, three to like five. And that's when she would pick us up, drop us off, eat, and then she would shower, go back to work from like seven to seven. So that was her shift from like my, my younger days. And I didn't have many friends at the time. So it was just like literally just me and my brother in the house, just like doing whatever, playing video games, all that. But yeah, I think that was the biggest challenge just to like try to find new friends try to find i want just like know yourself and just like try to find who you are
1: what was a big way that you explored that i know when we played together soccer was the big thing that brought mm-hmm. us together and it sounds like from what you've said about both yourself and Mou- Mou- yeah musha musha yeah uh soccer played a big part in the assimilation process because you touch on was that something that you played in Zambia and brought over with you? How mm-hmm. that impacted relationships that you might have made? Or really just how soccer impacted that whole journey? Whether it yeah. mindset-related, friendship-related?
2: I think soccer played a big part. I think that was the, that's why I'm still like in love with soccer. Because it just brings people together in general. Um, but for me personally, I played in Zambia. And the biggest challenge when I was playing in Zambia, because I played barefooted the whole time. So... You can imagine I had like cuts, bottles were sticking up my foot and like thorns and all this stuff just like cutting me up. So, but like that's what I was used to. Mm -hmm. As bad as that sounds, that's what I was used to. So just playing barefooted. And then moving into America, I had to, you have to wear cleats. So wearing cleats was just like not comfortable for me because like why do you have to wear shoes when you're playing soccer?
1: Much less running miles and miles. Exactly, yeah
2: and like soccer for me in zombie was more like a fun thing where it'd be like hey guys let's go play soccer doesn't matter you don't have to like condition you have to do push-ups do all that no just play soccer do it
0: yeah i just want to riff on the sports piece for a bit especially mm-hmm. soccer and i also have an international background so i didn't know football here meant mm-hmm. full hyper aggressive like hitting people yeah. in the face <laughs> sort of sport i thought football was soccer but that's yeah. not the case and if you look at Brits and I feel like the Middle East or Africa or Asia, a lot of the so-called political rivalry countries, they even have the power to come together in a peaceful manner in the face of sports, especially Mm -hmm. soccer, right? Soccer has been proven to have geopolitical influences in multiple continents, multiple areas of the world. So I just want to highlight that for the people. And obviously, as we all could relate to food, music, and sports, those are the three trinity mm-hmm. that could transcend any barriers any differences and truly have the power to bring people into like ethnicity and into like harmony so it sounds like sports definitely played a huge impact on your life especially soccer yeah so with that being said i would like to pivot our conversations from your childhood mm-hmm. and to into your current more present a chapter of your life so i also work as a program manager in the nonprofit sector and a lot of our work is comprised and involved around mental health aspects and a lot of my clients are african americans and although you come from an actual africa background a lot of our clients and i think our culture as people of color whether you're black or asians there's a lot of internal resistance Mm -hmm. towards mental health and it's extremely perpetually internally stigmatized within our cultures, right? Like I grew up in a tiger mom household, ruled under the strict authoritarian regime of my mom, who was a tiger mom, and she didn't think mental health was a thing. She didn't believe in depression. She didn't believe in anxiety. She didn't believe in self care. She said, Tough it up. What's the big deal? And for my personally working, I've faced a lot of resistance from my clients because they it's just so significantly stigmatized, it's hard to break through that barrier that, hey, mental health is real. You need to treat it as your physical health, if not more, because the impact could be potentially more profound on yeah, your yeah. life, right? So for you, who is an African-American who came from Africa, for your formidable adolescent mm-hmm. years, what prompted you and what motivated you going to go into the wellness aspect, to go into the mental health realm? Because of your background, I think that the economy presents a lot of interesting yeah. perspective for a, what inspires you going to that journey and some of the things you've learned and are currently experiencing from your a trauma-informed client's relationship and your work.
2: Yeah, like you said, I think for me personally, uh, growing up in an African house, it was, um, it's hard. You just, <laughs> certain things are ignored, like just people don't wanna talk about it. Even to this day, I have to like, asking people like, how's your day going? Because that's just like something that doesn't happen in like an African like, house. I think, like, growing up in Zambia, you have to be comfortable with just, like, growing up by yourself and, like I said, being mature. So you're standing by yourself. Nobody's going to help you. So, like, the next person doesn't really... It's not going to ask you, like, how... I mean, you ask because it's family, but they're not going to be like, hey, how's your day going? What's happening? What's stressing you out? So that's why I think right now it's so also hard for me to, like, open up to certain people because of my upbringing. But sports, I think, played a big part for me to transition into like this role and like my title now as a you know wellness coordinator at Drexel University. And then the way I got my uh, internship at the uh, Drexel site was through a client of mine at Westchester. So when I graduated I started working at Westchester ACAC and that was I was just like a fitness specialist. So what that is is like the person that like takes care of the gym, you know, cleans around puts weights back and all that. I just suckers the gym, make sure everybody's, everybody's good, safe and all that. So that was my position in fitness. And the cool thing is I had like a fitness membership at the gym, so it was a free gym and I was like, this is great. So that was how I met this friend of mine. His name is Jerry. And he introduced me to Drexel University. For a reason, he said, you know, you have potential to like, you know, be and mind you, we just like had a conversation. That's it. And that's how he knows me. He's like, you yeah, have potential to go into like a better position. Mm-hmm. So he introduced me to people at Drexel University, got me an interview, and that's how I transitioned into like Drexel University, like working there. I personally did not know that I was stepping into like a trauma informed care site. I just thought it was like another like gym, pretty much. So when I got there, I was you know have to be careful with what you say. You can't just be using, like, certain words. Certain topics are off, like, you know, you can't touch on certain, like, topics. So I had to, like, just shift my mindset. But at the same time, I think it fit in so well with me because, like, that is who I am. I, I'm always, like, thinking of, like, what I'm saying. So it wasn't really, like, a change for me. So getting there was, like, a it was a shift, but it wasn't really, like, a challenge. And I think that's why. I was like able to stay on for so long because I was just like fitting so like smoothly, like it just transitioned easily for me.
1: Before we move through with what you're presently doing, yeah. like, what you just said makes me really curious as to where this self awareness comes from. Is it the fact that you were very self reliant at a young age, or even coming over and like you said, building from scratch in middle school and high school, um, because. Working with different clients, each client needs to have such a personalized and specific Mm -hmm. approach, much less when those people have gone through serious traumas. You need to build trust with them, gain rapport, make sure that you guys can actually have the conversations and exercises that benefit on both sides. Where You said this is part of who you are, but I was hoping we could explore Mm -hmm. where that became part of who you are.
2: I think growing up by... Not having a lot of friends around So I just had to like Be like self-reliant on myself. I think that's where it comes from Like knowing just like who you are and like what you stand for I mean you'd be surprised how much like you learn about yourself when you sit by yourself Mm -hmm. So I think that's where that comes from for me personally
1: Sit by yourself in terms of meditation or um, just no less. I mean, I did
2: not I didn't even know what meditation was at the time I think just, like, sit along with your thoughts throughout the day. Like, I had to do a lot of things by myself. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how I just, I'm so, like, self-reliant. Like, that's why I'm, like, able to just be, like, be by myself. Because I've just mm-hmm. been, like, by myself from, like, such a young age. So it's not, like, a chore or, like, a challenge for me. You know what I mean?
1: Especially without the distraction probably through yeah. your upbringing, right? There wasn't any phones or television. Yeah, exactly. To distract, right? Yeah, yeah,
2: I mean. Like I said, I didn't have many friends and so not many people were, like, getting in contact with me. So, like, there's certain times where, like, I'll just plug my phone into the charger and leave it there for, like, the whole weekend until I went to, like, school. Even now with my roommates that I live with, they'll be like, why are you in your room for, like, a whole day? I'm just like, this is what I'm used to. You know, this is what I grew up on. Like, I used to be in my room. And not even just to be, like, in my room, just to be in my room because I'm, like, shy from everybody. But it's just, like, a part of me. When solitude becomes
1: enjoyable, it's almost like more peaceful in the world out there.
2: Exactly. You know? So like I have no problem being by myself. Yeah, I, I love it actually. So,
1: One thing I really need to explore is like that balance of solitude and loneliness, mm-hmm. right? Because I think your experience and perspective would be really valuable for this. Of You went through years of not having a lot of close friends depending on yourself. I'm sure there must have been accompanying times of loneliness, right? You didn't love solitude from the get-go. It was probably developed over years of practice. But what would you
2: say to people experiencing loneliness, or even ways that you've managed to get through that? Trust me, like, when I was by myself, I wanted friends. I wasn't like, I don't want, like, yeah. I just had to adapt into, like, the situation I was placed in. Mm -hmm. So that is why I was able to, like, get into the flow of things by myself but um the first thing i would say to like somebody that's i guess in that position just like find out what you're like comfortable with find out what you like find out what motivates you literally just yeah it's all about you because there's nobody else there just like find out what you what you like Mm -hmm. go internal yeah I appreciate the question
0: because I think the the dilemma or the potential challenge or the distinction between solitude and loneliness is definitely present in a lot of our societies. But to me, it sounds like it's not that. A, you viewed your solitude as like a strategy in a way, right? And yes, A is because the conditions you had to bear with that solitude and you had to be uh, comfortable be by yourself. Mm -hmm. And B, you might have viewed it as an opportunity because, like you talked about, there were so many presenting barriers and challenges to create your own community, to create your own network. So I'm sure you also had to intentionally think about what to say to certain people to gain their trust or to get to their likings and to seek that compatibility with a lot of friends, right? So maybe you had the opportunity to use that to think for yourself about uh, how should I behave? What should I say? when I when you are with hanging other people versus when you're by yourself. Mm. So it sounded like it act as like a twofold two for you. A, you generally enjoyed being by yourself and created that sanctuary of clear headspace for you. And B you use that as like a strategy ground to think about what to say when you are in a social setting. And I think that definitely, yeah. as you said, it helped you with the transition to your current situation where you didn't know it was a trauma-informed clinic mm-hmm. and you didn't know you were, you would be working with clients with traumas and uh, other mental health issues, but you were able to fit in easily because of your experiences. So with that being said, can you provide a little bit more context for the listener to see what sort of a trauma-informed clinic it was because trauma is such a wide spectrum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as we all know, events that could be perceived as traumatic may not be traumatic for someone else, right? A traumatization and the, act, the process of trauma is how you subjectify yeah. and how you perceive the experience. So uh, can you tell us about some of the clients you
2: work with? Yeah, um, I think personally, going up to like middle school and like high school, I guess I just wasn't accepted at the time. And that's a problem of trauma, honestly. If you're a young kid coming up, you're not accepted or you feel like you're not accepted. I think that like plays a role in how you grow up. So I think experiencing that, you know, in high school and in and like middle school, already was like embedded in my mind, like it was like a, hey, you were like pretty much never gonna be like accepted. So now like the only person that you have is somebody that you rely on is either like family or just yourself. So I think that's how like I kind of like found myself, because then you can't depend on anybody else. So moving into like, 11th Street and like this trauma home site was like. I already know who I am, so it was kind of easier for me to like, and meeting people where they're at. So like different kinds of trauma, such as you know sexual abuse is number one, obviously, like if you think of trauma. Bullying is another one. Um, there's a lot of trauma that people don't even think about. All that and just like meeting people where they're at. And what I mean by that is like, say if a new client walks into my site, I'm not telling you what you want to hear. And what I do is like, I find out what you want to do. So it's like, hey Ben, what do you want to do today? And If you tell me, hey, I want to go for a walk outside, then I'm standing off from my desk and walking with you outside and just getting to know you and just like talking and all that. So I'm meeting people where they're at. If you want to ride a bike, I'll ride a bike with you. If you want to meditate, I'll meditate with you. If you want to just sit there, just sit there and just do that. So it's about just like finding the balance of where people are at. And then I think that's why it was like so easy for me to transition, even though I did not know it. But now looking back, it's like, okay you've experienced that at such a young age now you're like smooth for you so it's like smooth sailing and that's why I feel like I'm sort of like good at what I do I guess
1: definitely it sounds like it's a balance of what's different for everybody yeah and I think your story is very representative and I think shines a really important light on like the fitness health etc industry right now because everyone's become zealots about whatever they specifically believe at the time is whether that's Heavy weightlifting, running, yoga, like I admit, and your story points to it, there's a lot of things that work really well for specific people, but to kind of like stand on top of a mountain and yell, this works best for everybody, I think is hazardous for everyone because like you said, different clients have different perspectives, different experiences and meeting them where they are, I think is a huge insight for not just fitness, but really meeting whoever you're trying to talk to where they are in all situations.
2: Yeah, and I think that position has also helped me transitioning into my role with like F forty five, like I mentioned. I think, like just focusing on that and like doing what is going on in 11th Street and just like not judging people for who they walk in as, has helped me transition into F forty five. Whereas like F forty five is more upbeat. You have to be energy driven, yelling constantly. Music is blasting. Just like you know, it's different from what like I'm usually used to. You want to make people feel comfortable as well. You never want to be like, Aiden, do you like, you're doing this wrong. Because then clients are going to be like, hey, okay, this guy's like forcing me to do this. I'm not going to come back.
0: Yeah, we talked about a lot of things, and I want to break down a couple of things. Yeah. And I do want to get clinical with you since I do work in the clinical mm-hmm. setting as well. I think the first part of what you described is transferable skill sets, mm-hmm. right? A, you not only worked as formerly as a personal trainer at the F45 studio where they utilize in HITS, high intensity interval trainings, yep. so you already had that coaching mindset, but I think you are able to transfer that from your identity and your hat as a personal trainer into this trauma-informed clinical coordinator where you meet with your patients in a clinical setting into where they are, right? trying to help them to get back to their feet or get back into the routine or to deal with their traumas, whatever it may be. And I think a lot of times our society puts so much emphasis on your resumes and the specific positions experience you've gone through. However, I think there should be a shift and it's less about what you did, but about what sort of the skill sets and experiences do you have? Because once you have that transferable skill sets, even though you don't come from a clinical background, right, you have the skill sets to help and work with the patients in a clinical setting. Yeah. But the difference is I think it's unique because you work concurrently as a part-time personal trainer on that 45 studio yeah. on the weekends, but your full-time is clinical setting role. Yep. So I think that that comment is pretty interesting where you're able to constantly shift back and forth between two different identities that you yeah. work with. Uh, the second thing I wanted to highlight for the people and also speak with you is the power of affirmations. Right. You brush it up but I heard that you have to meet with people where they are by first affirming and acknowledging where they are. Mm -hmm. And you talked about sometimes your patients or clients aren't necessarily be confident to their abilities, but you tell them you're doing a good job. You're doing a great job, right? You're not necessarily trying to push them to the next level because everyone works differently, but you're like, hey, you're doing great. I don't know if you know what the technique of motivational interviewing is called. So it's a technique and a method that's very common in psychotherapy. It's motivation interviewing, because like you both talked about, when you tell a client, hey, do this, do more, do that, it's called writing reflex. So it's a technical term in the psychology where every single person, especially as a coach, or for someone who's more rational like we are, you like to write someone else's wrong. So when you see someone doing something wrong, you want to say, hey, you're doing it wrong, you want to do something else. It's a writing reflex. Everyone has that. And then the other side of that is ambivalence. Yeah. right a lot of your clients have ambivalent aspects and when you're being ambivalent there are two sides to the story it's a mixed feelings right and then maybe your client wants to change so for example they might have a talk such as i want to lose 50 pounds but i have a job or i'm too busy they're ambivalent they want to change be better but there's something that they still are struggling with Mm -hmm. And what helps with it in a clinical setting is affirmations. You're firm where they are so that you're not always about changing, but you're also acknowledging their sustainment. But technically speaking, in the clinical realm, they're called sustain talk and change talk. And every single client has that. So with that being said, I want to ask you from a clinical setting point, what has been the most difficult part for you? So it sounds like it is a natural fit, right? Mm -hmm. Because of your upbringing, you had the comfortability to meet people where they are. Because of your coaching experiences, you know exactly how to proceed and meet with your clients. So that was the easy part for you. But what was the difficult part?
2: I think my biggest challenge going into that position was, um, say, like, using different words. Like, I cannot use modifications in a setting at 11th Street. Because then that makes somebody feel like they're not capable of doing something. So what I do is I have to use, like, the word options. So it's like, hey you're gonna do this you have a different option to do it this way but it's not a modification because a modification makes you feel like you're less worth than like you know what the actual thing is so instead of saying that i say like hey it's a different option you can do it do a push-up if you can't do it you have an option to drop down to your knees so either way you're still keeping that mindset up there so that was like the biggest challenge for me just like learning like the verbal language and like just like transitioning into that was like the biggest catch there's certain words and like just like verbal language and connections that we have in that site that you can't use anywhere else yeah it's just about like wellness in general just making sure you're not bringing anybody down whether it's yourself or somebody else even like your body language that's another way you can communicate with people so because of how emotional
0: your work could be Mm -hmm. because your clients every single one of them although on a spectrum of trauma, they all have traumatized experiences, yeah. how do you balance between your mental space at work and when you're not at work? And how do you deal with and how do you work with by not bringing the emotional baggage home? Because yeah. that's one thing that I really had to work on mm-hmm. uh, intentionally to have that mental clarity, to have that compartmentalization, to separate the work emotion versus when you're home, you're not affected by the traumas and the stories and everything in between.
2: So, thankfully, like, 11th Street offers us a a staff meditation. So, you have out of your uh, eight-hour workday, you have roughly, like, 30 to, like, 45 minutes to yourself. And that's part of your work. So, that's not part of your lunch break, but that's part of your work? Yeah. Yeah. So, technically, like, I'm working eight hours, and I have, like, a 30-minute lunch break, but I also have, like, 30 to 45 minutes to myself. So it's like a self-care time or service that you have. And that's what is included in that time. Because of the work that we do is such traumatizing, it's just like, could be a lot.
1: Obviously, meditation's being talked about a lot, but uh, on our episode with Anna, she introduced us to the idea of staring at a candle. And that was something that we had never heard of, of just like little tricks of how to get more out of the meditation or ways to make it accessible for people that might not be open arms to seeing it Is this something that you sometimes introduce to your clients? Are there any, like, things that you'll explain to them of how to make meditation convenient and people receptive to the idea? Just how do you
2: go about it? What's your practice look like? I view meditation as just, like, it could be anything. You don't have to be silent in a room for, like, however long you want to be. I think people meditate in different ways. Some people love silence some people love to listen to like DMX and just like meditate. So like I think it's about catching the balance of where like you find yourself in like a comfortable. That's why I always try to tell my clients like, yeah, people do sit in silent and do that and um, that works for them. So it's about what works for you. Um, even if it isn't meditation
1: like you exactly. said, that 30 to 45 minutes i think that's such a valuable insight that could be applied to any company in any industry it's like if you take care of yourself as an employee you can bring more to the company bring exactly. more to your clients right
2: like my view is like if i can't take care of myself and i'm not at a stage where i feel like i can support somebody so how am i going to support somebody else if i can't support myself so it's about finding myself and this is why like, I love fitness because like I work out and I find a space where it's like I'm comfortable and I do all these exercises before I give them to like, clients. Sounds like it's like a included
0: self-care block that's built in your schedule. Exactly, yes. But that's the whole idea of self-care. Mm-hmm. You seek out measurements that's going to take care of yourself. So I do like the notion that you kept talking about every patient and every client has his or her definition of self-care and they all seek out different treatments differently. So... I want to take a slight pivot so we've been talking a lot about our personal challenges and your challenges some of the lessons you've learned but i want to flip the script and talk about from the client's aspect Mm -hmm. so for some of the listeners that may not know this september has a special meaning in my heart so september is suicide prevention month i personally lost three friends during COVID uh, who killed themselves uh, two of my friends were from my fraternity at Penn State. They took their lives and one of them was a alum, but he also took his own life about in like June period. So, uh, and I'm in the military myself. So uh, September as a suicide prevention month has a lot of meeting, a lot of grounds in the military community because a lot of veterans commit suicide. Yeah. And during COVID, just from some stats... Uh, from, I think, February till June, July period, there was about, on average every single day, 10 veterans committed suicide every single day nationwide. Mm-hmm. That's an insane amount of number. It's a lot, yeah. So September has a lot of meaning to me personally and yeah. to my community as military people. So I want to uncover some of the techniques, some of the toolkits you provided for your clients. And I want to also shed a light mm-hmm. on the client's perspective because I think... For a lot of your clients who are specifically from trauma-informed settings, uh, they come with a lot of traumas, a lot of mental health challenges. Mm -hmm. So what do you think are some of the aspects of your work that your clients find most difficult and most challenging and how do you deal with those challenges? And I want to maybe use that to provide maybe some toolkits, some strategies for the people out there who are having similar struggles as we speak.
2: I know one of my clients, the drive, the motivation where it comes from is just getting out of the house. She just recently lost her mom and her mom lived with her. So it's hard for her to be in the house because it reminds of her like her mom, obviously. So the challenge was just getting out of the house and then coming to like the wellness center and just spend time around like me and just everybody else. And that's how she got her day going. So now that COVID's happened, it's hard for her to like jump on Zoom and just do the same thing. Yeah, you're jumping on Zoom, you're working out, but you're not escaping, you know. You're still in that house and you're still in that situation. So I think that was like, for me to like push her was just like, you don't have to do it inside. You know, you can do it outside, bring your laptop with you. Let's do it outside. Let's do that and that. And it's just like, just challenge people to just think different ways over like not being in a space where they feel like so like trapped in
1: creating their environment
2: yeah so i think that was like one of like i guess the most challenging aspects of like covid for me personally, like working so i just try to like i literally just try to share my story i try to be as open as i can to my clients so what i did this weekend what happened um what's going on in my personal life so i have to be as open as i can just to have them like know that okay this person has a life and also has like issues going on so we're, we're connecting in a way Just being as vulnerable as I can with them, honestly, is all I'd say.
1: Connection as almost the centerpiece.
2: Uh, One of the coaching certifications I'm doing right
1: now talks about a connection-based model. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea is that like you could know every fitness or nutrition fact under the sun, but really what it boils down to is connecting with that person, right? And I think it's super valuable. Like you're treating, from what it sounds like, you're treating your
2: clients as friends. Yeah, just that's why I have such like a good like connection with my. Clients even like through like social media is because I literally just treat them as my friends Obviously, there's certain boundaries that I have to like close off, but like I Literally try to stay as honest and as open as I can be and I think that's the biggest thing you can do um, it makes people feel like welcome and If you have a friend as a trainer, you obviously want to come back to them. You know, what I mean, so it's just about like building that rapport and just like connecting people
0: You're using relationship as the
2: foundation, but you're using
0: vulnerability as the bridge.
2: I'm using relationship as a foundation, but also just also being aware to the fact that I have to be vulnerable to build that relationship. Do uh, Do you know who Brene Brown is? no, no. So, uh, Ada knows
0: of her, she's a very esteemed social scientist, she's a therapist, she's a professor, she does everything. Yeah. She has a couple of Netflix specials, I think you would be interested. Okay. But her whole motto is vulnerability is strength. In her specials and her lectures, she talks about that the single most effective way to create that connections, to create that relationship with anyone, Mm -hmm. is vulnerability. Because by being vulnerable yourself, you're inviting for the other person to also be vulnerable. And that's why a lot of invaluable experiences and stories exchanged and a lot of that happened. So I think it sounds like you really, really leaning to that vulnerable piece and trying to solidify the relationship that you have so that you can provide what is best for your clients. So
2: that was the biggest challenge that also actually like just like being vulnerable because having to like shift into like my personal life, I'm also closed off at the same time. But then just learning, like, it's okay to be vulnerable, honestly. And that was, like, my biggest challenge. And even, like, with, like, relationship with, like, certain girls has been, like, I guess just not opening up enough. Yeah.
1: Vulnerability is definitely something that I've, like, extensively tried to work on. It's always a continuous work in progress. But I think similar to your story, I was very closed off as I was Mm -hmm. a kid. I think the introverted natures and closed off natures kind of compound together a lot. Yeah. But one thing... I'm not sure if it's a Brene Brown idea or one that I've heard elsewhere, but uncertainty is a prerequisite to vulnerability, right? So only when something's uncertain and you don't know how things are going to unfold does that make vulnerability. So there's this exercise of just speaking into the uncertainty, right? Anytime you feel that uncertainty of like, I don't know how this thought is going to go or I don't know how... Disclosing this idea, but really leaning into that uncertain idea that I almost uses like a flagpole. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like a heads gotcha. up of like try and move towards that thing. I mean it's always a work in progress and by no means am I there with vulnerability, but I think using it as a flagpole and always trying to lean into uncertainty. So yeah. I'm really glad that we're talking about this in the context of both clients, friends, relationships, I think is very valuable, uh
2: I think the biggest challenge also with on that topic was not having like somebody to like put your trust in young. I think that's where that comes from. So me being just vulnerable. Yeah. I'm vulnerable. I open up to people, but also just thinking like this person could just dip out anytime. And I think that's the barrier for me that I have to break and like get comfortable with somebody. And that's pretty much what like being vulnerable is. So you just like open up to somebody, just let them know what your insecurities are, your fears, all that. And just like, but at the same time, you also don't want to, like, let people in, just, like, just to let them in. So it's about, like, finding the right balance.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That balance of absolute trust. But exactly. also perspective around the reality yeah. of the situation.
2: Because I'd rather have, like, an open conversation with somebody that I know that's going to be there for a while rather than just, like, open up to somebody just to open up to somebody. And that's where that comes from. So it's like, okay, how long do you actually do you want to get to know me? Or, like, you know, do you want to talk for a long time? Like, I'll open up. But I just don't know how long you're going to be here for. So it's like... When do I open up to you? Mm. Yeah.
1: And we appreciate you sharing that because I think that's tough to like open up about. It's basically a core childhood wound at the end of the day, right? Yeah, exactly. What you alluded to, trauma can be any perspective of things. It doesn't have to be sexual assault. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be physical assault. But really, what did you say? Anytime people feel excluded or like violated yeah. in
2: some sense? Yeah, even like, even like with my my mom being here and me being in Zambia, like that's that's a trauma right there because a young kid cannot see like their parents. So in your mind, that's like something you build and you just like constantly think of, it's like, okay, why can I not see my parents? Like, you know, there's certain times that crying, saying, you know, why is my mom so far away? Why can't she come here on the weekends? That's like a trauma in itself. So I think like having that experience at a young age helped me build that resistance or like resilient platform to the point where I'm like, okay, I can still like stand by myself and like do certain things on myself, but still, it's still there.
0: Yeah, it's tricky, and I love that you brought up your perspective. I think what you're talking about is the burden of yeah. sharing, right? And most often people, when they think about having a conversation or an intimate, vulnerable conversation with someone else, they think the burden only falls onto the people who is receiving the story. Because if you care about someone else, now I'm burdened because now I have to sit through the conversation. Yeah. However, What most people neglect and overlook is the burden of sharing Mm -hmm. as a person who has traumatic experiences whether it's trauma or not because i think trauma could be perceived as any intensive experience whether it's financially intensive emotionally intensive physically intensive they all can be traumatic based on how you perceive it so that for someone to share something so vulnerable and close to their heart and their their experiences now you feel burdened for sharing so it's important that you brought it up and for all of us to be mindful that burden falls onto both parties however at the end of the day when I look at a lot of our mental health challenges within our collective society I have a couple of friends who are nihilistic. they mm-hmm. think there's no point of living like what's the point and unfortunately a lot of times those people tend to be people who are really really smart like a lot of my smart friends tend to have nihilistic tendency because They know too much Mm -hmm. in a way. And then they are also very closed off and they don't think anyone can help them. But I asked them sometimes, I was like, hey, have you tried to be vulnerable? Have you tried seeking help? Or have you tried talking with someone, Mm -hmm. you know, that you're comfortable with? So I think although it is extremely difficult to be vulnerable and to create the initiative to reach out to someone else to have that conversation, you, you honestly just never know until you actually try that. And I think... Once you are able to bypass that challenge and barrier of vulnerability, you'd be surprised by how many things you take away from the other side. So I do appreciate you sharing about from both sides of the spectrum Mm -hmm. about whether you're receiving trauma or you're receiving information or you're giving out that stories or giving out that trauma. So, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that.
2: But like that's definitely a point that I'm currently working on. Um, It's okay to be open and just let people in. Um, And whoever's going to stay is going to stay. And just like accepting that is, I mean, it sucks because you're like, you're giving somebody a piss of you in a way. So you're like opening up, telling them who you are, what your experiences are, and then they just walk out and then you, that's it. So that is like the fear, but just like open up and just, just see where it goes, honestly. That is what I'm working on right now. Uh, it reminds me of a quote by Jim Carrey. Mm-hmm. Jim Carrey said, we
0: might fail at what we don't like, so might as well fail at what we love that's not directly relevant to what we talked about, but it reminded me of the vulnerability piece where you may get rejected by anyone, Mm -hmm. right? Anyone could have that rejection towards you, whether you're being vulnerable or not, whether you're being true to yourself or not, or whether you're being yourself or not. So I think it's, I like to, along with you, do like a call of action and encourage everyone to at least try to be vulnerable because the rejection piece is always going to be there, whether you're dealing with your intimate others or not. So I think it's at least try to get rejected or have the possibility at trying something to be vulnerable or trying to create that deep impersonal connections.
2: Yeah, I think for me, like like I said, growing up, I didn't really have many people to like lean on, depend on. Also had to learn that validation is not like something that I needed because like either way, like people are going to judge you or like, even if like you do something well, somebody's going to talk. So like put that in the background, no matter what. People, like, go on social media, you know, they need, like, certain, like, feedback from people, but I'm just like, just put yourself out there, and somebody likes it, likes it. You know what I mean? If somebody accepts it, they accept it. So just know that somebody's going to accept it either way, and somebody's going to hate it either way. So just have that in your mind. And I think people set themselves up to a standard where it's like, everybody has to accept it, but I'm like, no, something's going to work for them. The biggest thing
1: that that reminds me of is that There's both sides. Some people are going to love it. Some people are going to hate it. But at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is, like, self-acceptance, right? Is accepting it from yourself and knowing that that was the best workout video you could have posted or, like, the best, not necessarily the best, but, like, that you stand by and you accept and believe in whatever that thing is you're doing. You shouldn't have priorities on any kind of validation from anyone but yourself, which we talked with two about last week. I think that was one of his big... Things from his real estate journey is like he didn't get cared about how people saw his dream, right? It might have seemed out of the ordinary or crazy in some situations. But really, it's just that self-belief, self-acceptance that I think is super valuable in all elements of, you know, posting, sharing, creating conversations. Yeah, speaking of judgments, I think it's hard for people to truly judge you for who you are because
0: oftentimes the only one person know you. That's yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's why we should focus more on self-judgment and self-evaluation because how can you validate or invalidate someone's effort when you don't even know the full context about that person? Yeah. So thanks for preaching that and thanks for telling people, focus on yourself because you are your best judgment because only you know yourself more than everyone else. Since we've been talking about judgment and peace with other people or our own self Mm judgments I wonder when you first came to the U.S., Did you have any pre-judgments or expectations of what the U.S. ought to be like versus the actual reality when you came here? And feel free to talk about any aspects of that transition of other reality versus expectation
2: piece. So the only view that I had of the U.S. at the time was like through movies, the news. um, Yeah, that was like the only view I had of it. So obviously they're going to show you what you want to see on the news, what you want to hear. and like racism for me at that young age was never something that I thought of so, so if you go to Zambia we accepted it's a country that's just open and accepting honestly it's accepting no matter who you are we have white people living there children's family and it's also I guess to some extent like a lack of like education around the topic itself I can speak on this because I grew up in Zambia went to school in Zambia and like Racism was never a topic that was touched in school. So coming on to like America now, it's like this is why we're learning, history. I mean, in Zambia we did learn about history, but not about like that topic specifically. Zambia just gained its independence like literally 56 years ago from the British because the British pretty much owned that land and like ran it by itself. So people in Zambia now are learning, obviously with like everything that's coming along. So like even like the Victoria Falls, the reason why it's called the Victoria Falls was because like David Livingston, the guy that discovered it, came into the country and then named it after Queen Victoria. Mm. So that's why it's called the Victoria Falls, and that's how it's popular. But us as Zambians, we don't call it that. We call it Musotunia. So what that means is like the smoke that thunders, because of all like the mist that comes off from like the water falling. Like. So that's what we call it. Smokes of thunder? No, the smoke that thunders. All that, and then coming here, I started learning about like racism, and then, honestly, I was like an 11 year old just that like, came into this country with like clean heart and then like, this is happening. I'm just like, "What now?" You know?" But then I also give myself in a space to like learn and like educate myself of what's happening.
1: Would you say it probably was a host of both things, but was it more a lived or a learned experience with racism? Was it studying the history and learning about slavery in middle school, or actually your own experiences living in a predominantly white community within
2: media Pennsylvania? I think it was living and experiencing it. At the time, though, I did not, I just thought people didn't like me. Like when you first came to the US? Yeah. I just thought like, people don't like me. And I, I was fine with that. I was like, they don't like me, that's fine. But now, looking back on it, I can see that was, like, racism and playing its part. Like I said, I've learned throughout now, just, like, experiencing and, like, learning and growing. Now I know, like, I spot out when it happens. But back then, I just thought, like, okay, it's normal. But then also, you were talking to a kid that was raised in, like, a predominantly, like, white neighborhood, white school, white everything, you know? I mean, we went to high school together. Black kids there, we could count you know, how many people were there. So, but yeah.
1: On oh, one or two hands. Sure. Yeah, literally.
2: I mean, max in every class, maybe one, like one or two people that were black. I actually remember one certain situation that was, um, I think it was like a history class. I was the only black kid and you remember how we had like AP levels and then level one, level two. It was a level mm-hmm. one class and I was the only black kid in my class and the topic of like racism came up and then we slowly like touched on the subject of like the n-word one person asked or like why do they spell it with an er versus like an a and then as soon as that question was asked i could feel the eyes on me i guess i i get it to some extent but like say if there's a chef in the room like if somebody asks about how to cook something they look to you but i'm also like why are you guys looking at me though like i don't have the answers that was like another experience of like, you know, racism that happened.
0: Microaggressions.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Microaggressions, yeah. Like I had like a mini fro in like high school sometimes. People were like, Can I touch your hair? That is also like microaggression, literally. Uh-huh. So like just like learning from those like experiences and just like growing and now just like knowing like we can't do that. It's interesting to see your narrative and your experience
0: because I've always been fascinated by the idea of identity. Mm-hmm. For any Americans that has a different ethnicity background, except a white, there's always a label. So, for instance, you're African American. Mm-hmm. I'm Asian American, right? But for yeah. white Americans, they're just Americans. Yeah. But if you were to examine most African Americans that live in the U.S., they have no connections with Africa. No. They are there is ancestral relationship, and then maybe their great, great, great grandparents came to the U.S., but they have no context to the africa history or the politics or the cultural right so i always thought it was interesting that a lot of these third fourth fifth generation asian americans had asian americans asian in the beginning or african in the beginning even though some of my asian american friends who are third fourth generation they don't know anything mm-hmm. about asia zero they don't speak the language they're as american as, as it could be mm-hmm. so for you how do you navigate between that identity of yours because you do come
2: with that actual african identity mm-hmm. you do you come with that experience so it's funny because like when i was younger i used to shy away from describing myself as african the reason being like it was looked down upon like if you're from africa you're, like you know stereotyped and all that so i would shy away from like bringing that topic up but now i bring it up more because i like i like i said i found myself and i know who i am and i'm comfortable bringing that up so it's just about like knowing and like accepting i said i guess I am African, like, that's what like that's who I am. But then, there's also, like, a... I think we talked about this earlier, it's, like, discrimination in, like, the black community. So, Africans versus African Americans. There is just, like, this acceptance that's just, like, not taken in. And then there's, like, a stereotype, whereas, like... Even, like, with, like, my own family, they've told me, like, stereotypes of, like, African Americans. Such as, like, they think, like, African Americans don't work hard enough and all this and just like, you know. So, like, describing myself now, I would say, like, I'm African. I'm black, I'm African, like, this is who I am. Everyone with, like, a job application, I take off, like, African, if there is an option, but... Um, uh, erasing the idea of a past erases
1: the wisdom that it holds currently, right? So even though the perceptions of living in Africa might not have been great, it's mm-hmm. still a fundamental part of who you are so by erasing that part of yourself you're erasing the wisdom which isn't good for anybody you know that's like fundamental to who you are and similarly like i'm fully aware that we went to like a predominantly white school and like that was a fundamental part of my upbringing which although i wish i had more diversity in my upbringing i know it's part of me which is why i'm trying to take such a solidified stance on educating myself around racism in america and like having conversations like this like if i denied that that privilege and that bias didn't exist i wouldn't be creating wisdom out of that now you know so you have to acknowledge the past whether it's light dark in the middle like regardless of painful joyful you have to look at it to find
2: the perspective here sorry uh it's like it's funny you say that because when like i didn't acknowledge myself not that i didn't act i just wasn't open I would say you didn't label. Yeah, yeah, so I didn't yeah. label myself as like an African. Like at a time, now I feel this like openness and just like freedom after just like telling people who I am. It's funny you said that because now I'm just like okay, it's, it's it is who I am actually. So it's like this is who I am. This is what you get. So either you're with it or you're not.
1: I heard this one saying of like, you can only get back as much as you give. So imagine Mm -hmm. a conversation as a total 100%. If you only give 40% in that conversation, the maximum limit on that other person's side of the conversation is what you're giving. So at most, if you only come in with 40, the other person, it's inevitably an 80. So by opening up yourself fully, sharing everything that makes you who you are, you can have those conversations that bring you to the full 100
2: yeah like even now if i made somebody out like a bar like a party whatever i just give them like my full story and it's actually a much better connection than i've had in the past it just makes me unique in a way honestly it separates me from like everybody else so that helps a lot yeah i want to echo aiden's
0: uh, gratitude for how open you have been willing to in the show and we always find that most of our magics and sparks do happen in the midst of those vulnerability and the intimacy details. So I do appreciate along with Aiden's and I think everything that we've talked about and everything that you've shared touches on the power of self-acceptance, Yeah. right? And then I think the key word of this episode and then the key phrase in your life, your missions, who you are is connection. Your life resolves around the idea that connecting with your patients, connecting with their clients, meeting where they are, creating that human connections, through vulnerability, through human relationships. And I think a lot of times, many of us neglect connecting with yourself. Oftentimes, how can you expect other people to respect your identity if you're not even part of your own identity? How can you accept other people in the world to accept who you are if you don't even accept who you are? So it sounds like you had to go through that mental transition growing up from first shying away from your identity because of the stigma, stereotypes, and the racism, to eventually for the past few years, you came to that self-acceptance, that you're comfortable with your skins, who you are, your stories that you now disclose and trying to present as holistic stories as you can. Yeah. And I think uh, it's very powerful because you have to accept yourself first and foremost for other people to accept that because people see it. Yeah, yeah. People can see your self-esteem. People can see, oh, this kid doesn't even respect him or herself. Mm -hmm. This kid doesn't even, he's in self-denial. It's very evident. So you have to harness that self-acceptance yeah. so that people will accept you externally.
2: Yeah, and I think that just like, also just attracts positive energy and just positive people around you too. If you're able to just like put yourself out there. Yeah, I think that's how I've built most of my connections now, especially most like recently, people just see see it. I mean, people can tell through like, yeah. you know, like, like Aiden said, like a small victory in my like, life, I guess, in my um, upbringing especially from the transition from like college into like working life that has been one of the victories i would definitely
0: claim. so yeah as we're coming to the end of the episode i'd like to ask you the question that we ask a lot of our guests so because you have so much experience personal experience Mm -hmm. and professional experience in creating the connections if you are the designer or the mentor of a mentor program Mm -hmm. that's designed for you and you're about to give advices to your younger self or to group of mentees what are some of the advices and mentorship you're trying to instill into these people?
2: Biggest advice I would give my younger self would be um, just honestly just be your authentic self. That's the biggest advice I would give to myself because I found myself trying to fit in with different crowds, trying to fit in with different people, um, trying to get accepted. But at the end of the day, I mean, if you can accept yourself and you know who you are, that's the biggest advice. I mean, that that's going to take you further than trying to fit in. And like, like like I said, if you do accept yourself and you don't think that's the best version of yourself, obviously work on that. But if you accept yourself and you know like this is who I am, you know your goal, strive for your goal, and keep like you know eyes on the prize. Yeah. For people who's interested in your journey, maybe your
0: coaching gigs on the weekends, mm-hmm. maybe what you do, uh, how can people find you, and what are some of the projects you're working on in the future?
2: Like I said, currently I'm also starting my uh, master's uh, program the, on the twenty first. So I'm getting my master's in uh, public health, and the reason why I chose public health was just, I think, like, wellness in general is more unique than just, like, focusing on one, like, say, like, physical therapy, because I wanted to do physical therapy for the longest time. Like, I work in a physical therapy setting, but it just didn't drive me or, like, motivate me. Public health, because it's just, like, you're focusing on, you know, the study of just, like, everything in general, so. Um, I'm excited for that. That's my next project. So focusing on that and then just like trying to build up my personal, uh, business on social media, doing more workout videos, more, uh, fitness inspired things. Um, and what is your Instagram tag? My Instagram is I am a lucky because I am a (laughs) lucky, but yeah, I am, I A M and then M E L E K I. Yeah.
1: Thank you, man. Uh, we're super excited to see you venture into the public health. I think yeah. that's super inspiring. You're taking the systems approach to making everybody healthier from a public setting. Yeah. And we'll keep an eye on for the fire Instagrams coming.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've di- I definitely stream. have some content coming up, so I'm excited for it. And then, um, yeah, thank you guys for having me. It was definitely great. Of course, man. Definitely Happy took, time. like, like a event session, but, like, just opening, you know.
0: And, yeah, thank you. And, as always, for anyone who... Stuck it out and listen to the very end. Thank you very much for listening. And and as always, till next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And it would really appreciate
1: if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.